How many of you listeners have sat in a meeting this past year and heard a program decision maker say, let's just pay them cash? Well, what if I told you, despite how common this experience is, the facts just do not support this statement? This week on Burning Questions in the Channel, we ask, why do some programs fail to achieve the objectives they were created to accomplish? Could an overly rigid rewards offering be part of the problem? I'm your host, Christopher Spann, and each week with the help of industry experts and analysts, I'll guide you through real questions facing channel professionals and dive into the strategy high-achieving programs. Today, we'll be discussing channel incentives with a specific focus on the individual, all while pondering why aren't cash rewards the only way to motivate? To explain this further, we're going to listen in to an excerpt from a webinar hosted by Claudio Ayub and moderated by Deb Broderson. Claudio answers some listener questions that go into detail about cash and non-cash rewards. So without further ado, here's Deb. So, Claudio, mm-hmm. uh, to start with, a question came in. This was part of the registration. How do you establish yourself as the most important channel partner to distributors? Okay, so um, assuming that we're taking the, the supplier, the vendor-distributor relationship, the way you establish yourself as one of the channel partners to that distributor typically is going to be by providing a, an incentive, a rewards tool that the distributor can use in its multiple channels to market as well as in its multiple different business lines. So here is a, a huge incentive right, of which you, the supplier, have branding and comms control, yet you empower that distributor to use that tool to build incentive programs for their different business units, for their different, you know, um, partner tiers, partner segments, whatever you want to call it. That today is what I've seen most successful. Thanks, Claudio. Here's another question that we just got. What are the characteristics of a sales incentive that does more than only pay for closing deals already in the pipeline, right? That goes back to the conversation we had about timing. Right. So, you know, and and we touched on this in in several areas, right? And we have an e-book coming out that is going to go very deep, deep in here. So, you know, if you're in a transactional model still, right, and you're selling products, you're selling hardware still, you know, those discounts are very important. Now, having said that, you can still add incentives to those activities and behaviors that lead to that sale. Now, on the other hand, if you're in a recurring revenue model, right, and and you're selling solutions, cloud solutions, discounting is not going to, you know, have an impact. I've seen companies in, in that type of uh, business today actually use those discounts and convert them to incentives that they're providing throughout the sales cycle, pre-sales enablement as well as post-sales. Because, you know, while, you know, five, ten years ago the transactions were a million dollars, right, today the transaction value is minimized to a recurring revenue model. So a discount, not really important. Thanks. One last question and then we'll we'll wrap it up and it has to do with co-employment. We, we um, mentioned that there's legal issues around co-employment. 
Um, do you have some information that you can share as part of that? Um, yes, yeah, so we don't typically advise on co-employment since it tends to be more of a legal or IRS issue. However, we do share information that you know, we find useful to help guide clients to make their own determinations. At the end of the day, it is you know, the, the enterprise level customer of ours that, that has to make that decision. But what happens here is that enterprise clients, legal compliance teams are very concerned that the U.S. government in search of new sources of tax revenue is doubling down its efforts to identify large companies who are potentially misclassifying workers. Moreover, the U.S. Department of Labor and the IRS refer to situations where two companies maintain control over an employee's work as co-employment. And you may ask yourself, so what does that have to do with reloadable debit cards? Well, consider this, that if you're paying a straight cash for transaction spiff to a partner sales rep on an ongoing basis via a branded reloadable debit card for work, such as making sales, training, marketing, right? And you're doing this on behalf of your company, on behalf of your brand, and, moreover, you're then reporting those earnings to the IRS by issuing 1099s to those partner sales reps. You're going to certainly be raising a red flag with some government agencies, right? And, and what happens is that when these agencies determine whether a supplier is a co-employer, the IRS, for example, uses what is known as a common law employee test. And this test states under common law that anyone who performs services um, for you that is not your employee falls in this category. Um, so, you know, companies need to look out for that. And that's it for this week's episode of Burning Questions in the Channel. Hope you learned something about cash rewards and the changing tides among channel program administrators. If you enjoyed this podcast, there's a very simple way you can support us by sharing it with a friend, a boss, a colleague, or any industry professional who might benefit from this information. If you still have questions, you can check out the full webinar, Cash is Not King in Channel Incentive Programs, online at resources.perks.ww.com slash webinars. I'd like to thank everyone who has already subscribed and encourage those who haven't to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever podcasts can be found. Until next time, stay motivated.